Hash House and Circle Up. Welcome to On On, the Hash House Harrier podcast for interviews, history, and stories. I'm your host, Ra. Today on the podcast, we're in the UK, going back nearly 50 years with another hasher, back with the mother hash, started in the 70s. Today on the podcast, let's go back into hash history with Fireman. Welcome, Fireman. Thank you. Cheers, Ralph. Also known as David, but let's tell everybody your origin story. When, where, and how did you get to your first hash? I think I was in a bar somewhere. Um, in Battery Road in KL. I'd met a couple of these guys who were on the hash at some club, at the Lake Club, and these guys came in after a run. He was a Navy diver, very fit guy. He worked for overseas engineering. He came in and he said, Barker, what the hell are you? Why aren't you joining the hash? (laughs) He'd be persuading me to join. He said, look, what fun it is. And, you know, and there's the on-on and everything. And you see, he had mentioned it, and I had hated the cross-country. We had an annual cross-country race every year at school, and I lived in dread of it. (laughs) So so I thought it was some bloody cross-country, and I said, no way. But finally, he said, come on, Barker, and there's a bunch of others. So I said, okay, I'll I'll come along. And he took me to the next Tash. Do you know what year that was? I got to KL in August 73, so it must have been early 74. I'd I'd resisted for about four months. (laughs) Do you remember anything about either that first run or the early days there in 74? What was the KL hash like then? It was fantastic. It was mainly expat. There were a few wonderful old Chinese businessmen, rich Chinese guys who I think they were using it as a sort of business club. They weren't quite sure what it was. So we had some great old characters, but basically expats, mainly we were on three-year terms there mostly. Most of the long-term expats had left the people, you know, the old planters, but the mm-hmm. worst planter people. So a lot of businessmen, quite a few engineers. And it was really, the great thing about it was that every week on Monday, at five o'clock, you were, I was going to be in somewhere new, somewhere different, somewhere unique. It could have been in the rubber, it could have been an oil palm, it could have been in the in the jungle, or it could have been on the tin mine. And it was just fantastic. And there was such a great bunch of guys just used to drink. I mean, when we came back <laughs> to run, so we never ate. We just have a big tank full of ice. Uh, came in a van from the brewery, from the Malaysian brewery, Malayan brewery, and they emptied all the tins and Cokes and 7-Up and ginger beer into this tank. And we just sat around it until we'd drunk everything. And it could be some people peeled off. Obviously, they had to go back. But otherwise, we'd just sit around there and talk. And it was just fantastic. Warm nights, crazy stories. We never ate anything. So we'd all been drinking, but of course we'd been running for hours. So somehow none of us got killed on the way home. Yeah. We hardly ever remembered getting how he got back. I think there was only one story. There was a, a Swede who'd run off the road somewhere coming down from the uh, one of the hills from the hill station. station. Amazingly, I, none of us got killed. I don't. I think one guy did get killed once. He fell off a, a large boulder in a river stream, but. We were amazing, and we never saw snakes. Everyone said, you can't go running the snakes. I I think I saw three snakes the whole time I hashed in Malaysia. Fairly low risk. It was just all great fun. 
So do you think that Hasher that you recalled that somebody died, was that, did he die on trail? No, he died going home. Ah. Driving home. This chap, who I, I, I will remember, I have to give it to you as a separate one, because he was a great chump. The great, the king of the hash, if there is such a thing, the, the old man of the hash was John Duncan, who you'll know well. I'm sure you'll know his name. Sure. He was the sort of, uh, the great mover. But there are a lot of guys from way back. There's David Scorse who'd first run, I think he'd first run in 58. Even I think he was the hash secretary the next year because everyone else was getting pretty tired and he'd only been there for a, a year or two. And he's still alive. He's, he lives just down the road from me here. David Scorse, it's S-C-O-U-R-S-E. Um, and he and he was full of wonderful stories as well. I mean, he's been on the hash since 58, for God's sake. Yeah. Let me ask you about your experience there at the beginning you were dreading it fearing it was a competitive cross-country race how did you do on the running then with this group of were there mostly runners were they the same as you were you at the back how'd that work well it was all sorts of things we had a golden rule in kl on the kl hash that you should never run uphill (laughs) you know that was a laid-back sort of british Hashman, but of course there were a lot of American bankers there. There was Tom Noring was Mr. Gazette, uh, Gillette. There was Keith Kanega who was Chase Manhattan. Let me do some inter- interjections here because I've talked to Keith. Keith came back to the United States and started one of the earliest all men's hashes in Rumson, New Jersey, and he's now exactly. in New York. Yeah, yeah. So I met him when he came back to London, and we talked about that. Yes, I kept him. T- I last saw him probably about 10, 15, no, 20 years ago. Yes, I, I imagine you would have known Keith. If you ever have time and interest, you can hear my interview with Keith. And I'll, oh, I'd I'll love to. Yeah, because yeah, he's a great, I mean, he was brilliant because he was a, a great hash scribe. His recall of runs, yeah, had a great sense of humor. Yeah, he was good. Tom Noring was a was a great, great, great mate of Keith. He's now lives in Boston. And Tom had been in the Olympic, the American Olympic sprint team. I think it was the quarter mile sprint team, right? Uh-huh. So he was very, very competitive. And Keith was a long, lanky guy, uh, not quite such a fast runner, but he was a longer, he was more of a long distance runner. So these guys used to race all the way around. And there were one or two Scandinavians and one or two Germans who had no idea that, you know, hashing was for enjoyment and, you know, looking around and enjoying the <laughs> and, and things. And so they would race. So there were, there was some very competitive racing. I think I would, the best I ever did was probably in the top. Maybe in the top 20, <laughs> in the top 10, something like that. But the whole point was not to really race, it was to just take it all in and love it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, let's talk about how the trails were. Hash traditions vary around the world. They've changed over the decades. Were there things like false trails or checkbacks or was it? Oh, you uh... bet. You bet. Okay. For a start, we used, it was a paper chase. So we were using basically old office paper. So the secretaries in the office would chop them into sort of two inch square, 50 millimeter square patches, and, and you'd just grab a whole lot in a bag. And somehow there was always enough paper to go around. And you could only lay paper on the day because there's always daily rain. But if you were a lazy hare and you decided to do half the hash 
on the weekend and then the rest of the hash at late afternoon on the Monday, you're in big trouble because the chances are the paper being washed away over Sunday night. Right. It was basically ordinary. What's that printing? Ronio type. Ronio type. type paper. Uh, anyway, basically okay. it was quite porous. Um, it's been printed on, and then eventually people started bringing in slightly tougher paper, punch card paper, computer paper, stuff like that. Right. Longer, and that was frowned off. You had frowned on. You had to be careful where you laid that. But basically, it was always paper. And yes, you, there were rules, but you basically had maybe five checks in a run, maybe five or six. And at a check, you would lay, lay a, a pile of maybe four or five bits of paper, not too much. And then you had rules for where the trail could start up. You could lay false trails, but also you had a various rule for rubber. You could have a longer um, distance from the check to the new trail. In the forest, in the jungle, it could be shorter. It could be probably, there's a maximum probably of 50 meters. So it depended on the terrain and, you know, the, the sort of, uh, what should we say, the visibility of the paper. And also, if you're in a hilly area, you didn't want people running off the side of a hill and dropping off into, you know, into something. So basically, <laughs> it depended on, yeah, depended on the country, really. So you had these rules, and most rules, like most rules in hash, were ignored. That was a general thing. And we had this great thing, don't know whether you heard about it, but there was find a dozen beer. So if you ran up a hill ostentatiously and too long, and if you're an American, you would be fined a dozen beer at the end of the run. <laughs> so you had to bring those the next week? You bet. And if you broke, you had to put them in, you know, bring them to donate to in, to put into the ice tank. And if you had done a really bum run, the same thing would happen. If you got everyone lost, you would got lost. Or if your checks were lousy, if there's a really terrible check that went on for hours and hours and hours well not hours but you know tens of minutes then you were fine let's talk about that a little bit more who made that decision was it john duncan mainly who made the decision on who got fined it was a joint decision i think i probably it was at the on on afterwards i think it would be the on sec i think he would you know he would introduce the any visitors and make a general comment about the run and then at that point he would say it might even say I vote, but I think mostly it was endorsed. Sometimes it was rejected. People said, no, to hell with it. But, <laughs> you know, basically it was a normal hash sort of chaos. But, they, but it, was, it was normally very much uh, a consensual uh, decision. It, right. it was really bad for some of these offences. Not many people had seen it. For instance, somebody running up a hill, not many people in the hash would have seen that. It would only be somebody at the top of the hill or something who saw this guy came shooting up. And, and you would know that guy, you would know that particular offender had form. So you'd say, yeah, sure. And you knew he could afford it as well. <laughs> yeah. How long was it before you set your first trail as a hare there? Oh, How long I, I, it took me a long time. I, there were so many good, good uh, hares. And also there were so many experienced hares and usually there was a list of about five or six, certainly. It took me probably a year before. I wasn't a, an immediate sort of, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, because I just wanted to get the feel of it and get to know all the rules and things, and, 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 and I was a, idle. I had a job where it was very hard to get away uh, early in the afternoon. That's the other thing, because if you're a hare, you really had to, to start after lunch. Mm-hmm. 
I remember when I first joined in 74, the project was very busy. I was working on a highway project, World Bank Highway project. And, um, it was hard to get away. And also I had young kids and it, it, was, it was hard to get away for the weekend. But after about a year, so it would have been, I think, the end of 74, early 75. And I was there till about June. So for about 18 months, I must have laid uh, about three, but only three, not many, because we were quite large. And it, it, you know, and it didn't come round. Your turn didn't come round. But I did lay an absolute disaster of one hash. <laughs> it was with a guy called Vince Sheehan, Vince Sheehan, who was with Motorola. He was the, I'll say, he's the manager of Motorola in uh, Petaling Giant, the suburb of KL. We'd done a, a lot of wrecking, and we decided we were bored with rubber. We were bored with the tin. Bored with palm oil because that's horrible, very hot and, and prickly. So we um, decided to do a jungle run. He knew somebody who the American, the American CIA or somebody was doing research in, in treetops using these big, these high walkways, suspended walkways, and walkways, and they were doing research into um, insects and and bites and diseases and things like that. I guess it was jungle warfare stuff. Vince knew this old walkway that had been set up in this in this reserve. And so we thought, yeah, that would be great. We'll, we'll, it would be different. We hadn't run on a, an elevated walkway about 50 feet off the ground. We laid a, ha a hash which took that a short length of that. Not long, probably it was only about 100, two, maybe two or 300 feet, way up. <laughs> But we started off in open ground. It was tin mine and a bit of uh, rubber. And then by the time the run turned into the forest reserve, suddenly a massive great black cloud came over. So about wow. half an hour, really, before we'd expected it to get twilight, we were into quite dark darkness and heavy rain and thunderstorm and everything. So as we got to the elevated walkway. There was a lot of wind, even in the forest. And so paper was being blown all over the place. <laughs> and, and no one knew what the, the, was happening to the trail. And also we were by then dark and we never carried torches in KL. Very rarely. Oh. We always carried torches, but we didn't in KL. Very rarely. Only a few wise guys. We finally somehow managed to get to the beginning of the rope, the walkway, and then it stopped. And then what happened was the it was pitch black, and all of the whole floor of the forest of the jungle was covered in paper. We <laughs> what's this? And it wasn't paper; it was the leaves as they rot. They go luminescent. So wow. during the darkness, and only when the lightning flashed. When you had light for a second, could you see, make the diff make out the, the paper, the white paper would stood out and the luminescence would all disappear in the light, in the light of the lightning. So you would, in the light of the lightning, you see the paper, but not the leaves. And of course, the lightning was frequent, but not very often. So most of the time, we just had a complete carpet of what looked like paper. And, wow. and, and people on the run, ended up all over the place. They came out all four sides of this forest reserve. They went to the west, to the airport. 
South, south to Housing Estate, north to the main road, the Sungai Bulo Road, and then a very few managed to get back to the start. And of course, you know, there were people who didn't get back until after midnight. So Vince and I paid a very heavy price. And I think one, we either had to do the next five runs or they said, no, we don't want you to lay any runs for one time. So that, I think that was my most memorable run. That's fantastic. Uh, nobody's mentioned that one yet. And actually, I'll get, maybe I'll get back to Keith and ask if people remember that one. It hadn't he might, come up. He might know it. It was an absolute disaster. The most amazing thing, and I can still see it, is it's dark. And you see the whole forest, just these little sort of whitish things stretching out in all directions. Okay, there's the odd tree gets in the way. And then the lightning. And then suddenly you would then see the trail and you'd move forward. And that's right. And that's what happened. We then started. We then got to the beginning. We got to the beginning of the of the elevated walkway. <laughs> and about four or five was, there were groups of four or five and it was so dark that you held, you won't believe it, we held hands as we walked away, tiptoed along this walkway in the dark. And then and, and, and scared stiff we were going to fall off the end because we couldn't see where the bloody end was. And, and the, check, the check, which was, you know, check, we set the check about... 50 30 feet before the end of course the check had disappeared so no one knew where hell the end of the thing was and we so we, <laughs> and so if anyone had fallen off you know we were hoping we were going to help hold him and four of others would hold would hold the other you know would help four or five would hold him up stop him from falling down into the hole that was a theory anyway it was just unbelievable it was the night the hash held hands in the dark it was just it was just wild yeah that, that is a brilliant took a long time to live that one down <laughs> let's quickly then run through your chronology you left there uh, after about 18 months of hashing where did you go next for an hash I'd, I'd run a bit in pj patoling jar there were by then there were quite a lot of hashes in kl so i guess say we used to there was a ladies hash being set up there was Bataling hash. So by the time I left in 76, uh, there must have been about probably five different hashes. There were probably about 50 there. Now. So after after running with KL and PJ and the ladies hash, I went to Manila. Manila I had, had one hash then? There was only one hash. It was the it was the um it was mm. the Makati hash. Yes, it was the Makati hash. So we ran out of Makati, it's Forbes Park. Was, was the main center of the hash there. There was a military base there, which Ford's Park. So we used to run around the edge of the military bases. There was a lot of flat ground, open ground there, away from the housing. But obviously, we often ran downtown. So you, mm. you run downtown into down by the bay. That was really pretty grim because it's full of jeepneys, clouds of exhaust, and they were charging along the roads, you know, ignoring any pedestrian. You had to be pretty careful. So we used to run in downtown Makati in the old parts of, what was it called? M Makati Bay, I guess. There was a very famous hotel, Manila Hotel. We used to run around there and around all the knocking shops and all the bars. It's pretty unhealthy stuff, really. The only relief was we occasionally, we used to go out for Sunday runs. So the couple of, of the local long-term expats, they had Filipino wives. Some of them had quite wealthy Filipino wives. So there was always some lovely place to go out in the country and we'd have a Sunday run with the families. Basically, otherwise, I think it must have been like KL. I think it was probably a Monday run, Monday night run. 
That was a few years before they formed the first women's hash there in the Philippines. Correct. So what about the traditions? Was it very like KL or did they add singing or circle or anything it like that? It was very similar. It was very similar. In fact, some of the guys, there was one or two guys who'd come on. I, I remember a chap called Columbo. Can you, does his name come up? I've forgotten his first name. A friend of Tom, and he was with American plantation company uh, begins with uh, it's a four-letter word he had moved ahead so i knew him knew one or two others it's very similar you know a lot of wenching went on of course i think we used flour uh-huh. no it was it was chalk we used chalk in manila and flour it was in hong kong so it wasn't paper so that was the one different difference because there was so much interchange between the hashes with all these expat guys, you know, they they were either based in Hong Kong or KL or Bangkok or, or Manila, and they used to do the region. So they used to plan their tours around the region so that they, they were in the in the towns, uh, was it Sabah, Tawau, Kowloon, Malacca, they would plan their business trips on the night, on the day of the hash night in that town. You've heard that. You've heard about that, haven't you? Of course, yeah. We Some of us still do that today in the uh, sure modern version you know, sure over, the, over the past sure 35 years. Yeah. Were you traveling around at no, all? No, I wasn't. No, I was I was project-based. So, I, I, you know, I stayed. I was either in KL. I was in KL in the end for three years altogether. Hong Kong for four years. Manila, three and a half, rather. Manila was in sandwich between KL and, and Hong Kong. I was there for six months, and then our project came to an end, and our partner, Filipino partner, decided they were going to go with the Japanese, and not, I was with an Australian firm then, and so so I left Manila then. At some point, you went back to KL for a term? Yeah, I used to go back, yes, I went back. Well, in 87, after I came back from England, I, I, I spent three months on a project back in, in KL in 87, and I ran the hash then. Then I had some more trips from the UK, and I used to go to either Manila, Philippines, or Hong Kong. So I used to run, you know, as a visitor. And then, that was after my four years in Hong Kong, I used to run, occasionally used to run with the Hong Kong hash, but mainly it was I was with the Kowloon hash. Mm-hmm. It was the boys of Kowloon and the men of Hong Kong, because the... Mm-hmm. They were all American bankers and American businessmen and British bankers. And the Kowloon people were the fit, younger uh, civil servants and military types who were a bit bit less, what should we say, uh, of a social elite. You know, we were the... Mm-hmm. And, we had some, and we had some policemen, quite a lot of policemen. In, in fact, one of them, Stuart McDowell, became... I think the, the the police, the most senior expat policeman in Hong Kong, just before the handover, you know, they they were we had quite a good mix. Yeah. When you got back to KL on those visits after your first left, had you noticed change? Was there a change happening yes. in KL? Well, gradually, gradually. Yeah, it hadn't really changed much when I got to in '87. I'd run in '88, in '80 anyway. I'd gone to the Interhash the the K, there was an interhash in 1980, so right. on my way through from Hong Kong, I'd been to that, to 87. 
very much the same guys. John Duncan was was there. A lot of the people I knew, Chris Boyd was there. A lot of them. Mm. But then gradually it did change. It became much more local because most of the, you know, the the expat community had reduced. And Malaysia wasn't such a KL wasn't such a what's the word a good posting. It wasn't such a dynamic place compared with Hong Kong and Singapore. So there, were, it, there was definitely more locals, which is good, but it had changed because it became slightly disorganized. Not a lot of sometimes you had um, hares who had never properly wrecked. You know, there was a lot mm-hmm. of nonsense going on. People would drink in the afternoon and then go out on the hare. As a, on a hair, and we had some chaotic runs. So, so the quality had gone down. But the other thing, when I was there, Kale was surrounded with by greenery. There was, mm-hmm. you know, there was the Clang Valley was all greenery and estates. Then gradually, by about the early nineties, you know, Kale had stretched. The whole place became just a, an urban, semi-urban sort of area, and all those lovely runs that we had about half an hour away from the centre of Kale. They disappeared. They've been, you know, mm. become factories. They've become housing estates. But the great thing was that they built up the road network, so you could, with the new roads, instead of these windy little roads, you could get a long way out. You know, probably ten, fifteen miles out, very quickly. And so you could run new countries. So we were running different country. We were running country further out of KL. So, you know, it was it was the same mix. It was it was rubber. It was tin wine. It was uh, a little bit of palm oil. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the rubber was dying out. Palm oil was coming on. That's right. It was the other way around. Occasionally, you went up to the for- up to the hills into the forest, you know, up near Genting Highlands. We had lovely runs up there. And we yeah. had hash walks. We had hash walks as well. By the 90s, we had a, a thing called a hash walk. But that's something else. My experience, I spent a lot of years in Cairo, in Egypt, and when I got there at the end of the 1980s, we had giant sand dunes that we could run on. There were there was petrified forest that you could run through the desert really? and, and find y'all oh, petrified wood. You could find petrified Maybe. seashells, and that's all condos now. Yeah, so same yeah. thing. The yeah. large cities have lost. They've spread out, haven't they? Like. I don't know, like some sort of horrible bug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good coverage of your origin and KL. We call you Fireman is sort of a hash name. Of course, KL did not have hash names at the beginning. Well, they, did, they did have them, but not to such an extent somehow. Yeah, we, we you had titles, you know, the, the hash scribe, the hash horn, the da da but most people, you know, they were just called. But they were, there were, there were people, you know, who were, I'm sure Keith was given a name. <laughs> he claims he's always been just Keith and never gotten a name. I'm sure, do you know? I, okay, all right, okay, maybe right, maybe right, um, maybe right. <laughs> he may have gotten one that he no, he figures no he, one he will tell. Want to tell you about that's right. Yeah, I unfortunately I told you I I've lost all my rush Richard hash, my lovely hash treasure of all those hash treasures. Yeah, because I'd love to have them again. Yeah. What's your link to the name Fireman then? You haven't got enough time. I'll tell you. It's a long story. All right. We'll do that on the next section. We'll do but it on the next one. Gonna... It was in the China Fleet Club in, in Hong Kong. It, it was an event that happened. Basically, that we were invited over to some sort of joint meeting with the Hong Kong hash, and they were being such a bore, and they were doing some awful, uh, I don't know, jokes or something. So we, I got went out in the corridor. There was one of these old water 
fire extinguishers. Mm. <laughs> so I hook it into the hole there, pull the old collar around the, the piston, and then set it up on the stage, and then bang the handle down, and then ran like hell, because we got chased all the way down down the uh, one, one chai by this very angry crowd of Hong Kong hashes. So after that, the uh, the Kowloon hashes called me fireman. Yeah, that was the reason. It wasn't very clever, really, but it was wonderful. It, the jet just went straight over the stage, and, and these guys wondered what the hell it all was about. And then, then there was a mighty uproar. Anyway, that's it. That is part one with Fireman. There's lots more to come with history of the 70s and 80s with Fireman. This is the On On Podcast. Hasher voices, Hasher stories, Hasher history. New episodes every week. Till next time, On On. This is Rod. To close the circle, here's the Hash Anthem sung by Mother Hash. Swing low.